Well, our main reading is taken from Revelation 15, beginning of verse 5, reading to the end of chapter 16. If you're using the Church Bibles, it's on page 1037. And it says this. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels, with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes round their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives for ever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores <coughs> came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and everything living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers, and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just to you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, who is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and he was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river of Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. 
The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been seen since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake. The great city was split into the three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds, each fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Well, in a moment we're going to have a look at that passage, but before we do, let me just mention a couple of things. The first is, there'll be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of what we've been thinking about, uh, straight after the sermon. So as soon as we've finished... I'll open it up, and we normally get uh, three questions in, depending on time. Another thing to mention is in your service sheet, there is a sermon outline which you can use if it's helpful. Otherwise, feel free to ignore it. And then most importantly, let's pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not leave us, leave us in the dark, but instead you give us a glimpse of what is going to happen in your eternal plan. And we thank you that although these things do sound devastating, this is good news for all those who believe, because it's your job to vindicate those people who've stood firm for your son's name. And it's your role to not only vindicate your son, but vindicate his servants as well. And so we thank you that as we reflect on these things, we see that this is your answer to the prayer of the saints. Amen. Well, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, we read the letter to these seven churches. And within the letter, some of the churches are celebrated for their witness to Christ, while others are encouraged to take that witness up again, having lost that desire for it. After all, the central role of the church is to bear witness to Christ. That's what makes the church unique from everything else. As we move further into the book of Revelation, we come to the opening of the seven seals. But before the seals can be opened, there must be one found worthy to open, those scro open the scroll. And what is followed by the remarkable event where the lion of the tribe of Judah approaches the throne looking like a lamb that had been slain and receives the scroll because he is worthy to open the seals. Now it's within this context that the prayer of the saints is first mentioned. We read of this back in chapter 8 verse 5. Chapter 5, verse 8. Sorry. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp 
and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The elders worship the Lamb, but they do so with golden bowls full of incense in their hands. The incense that fills the golden bowls are the prayers of the saints. Now at this point in Revelation, what the saints pray for has not yet been disclosed. It's only when the fifth seal is opened that we learn what the saints are asking. The saints are dead. Their souls are found under the altar. The reason they've been killed is precisely because they've testified to Christ. They've offered salvation and those who heard the good news, well, they didn't repent and believe. Instead, they were so offended that they killed those who brought them the gospel. And so the prayer of the saints is this. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? The prayer begins by recognising that God is sovereign and therefore is in a position to avenge their deaths. The prayer goes on to acknowledge that God is holy and true, or we could put it another way, his ways are righteous. And then they ask when God will punish those who've taken their lives as a result of their witness to the word of God. They fulfil the church's role to testify about Christ and their reward was death. Now in today's passage we read of how seven angels are given seven golden bowls. These bowls, well they're not full of the prayers of the saints, instead they're full of the wrath of God. God is about to pour out his wrath upon those that dwell on the earth. And though it will be the angels that pour the bowls, they are merely God's agents. This is God's response. And it's no accident that the prayers of the saints were contained in bowls back in chapter 5. And now God's response will be meted out through seven bowls as well. God is in his sanctuary metering out his wrath upon those who harden their hearts against him. And no one will be able to enter the sanctuary until his wrath is complete. Now as Christians, it's hard for us to understand why, when people hear the gospel, they don't repent. It's hard for us to understand, quite simply because when we heard the gospel, we did repent. We know it to be true. We know the salvation that's available. We cannot fathom why others do not see it as well. There have been non-Christians that have laid down the challenge. If God made it so obvious that he existed and left it beyond doubt, well then, I would believe. But can this really be an authentic claim, given the fact that the world has witnessed his mighty acts throughout history, which culminated in him sending his son to walk among them? If the Jews of Jesus' day didn't recognise the Son of the Father, why would our contemporary friends recognise God anymore? 
Then there's Pharaoh's experience of God. God sent Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh, and he brought increasing acts against Pharaoh. It was made clear that it was when Moses or Aaron acted that the sign began. Pharaoh was given the chance to name the point that the plague would come to an end. So there could be no mistake who brought the plague and who ended the plague. A distinction was made so that the people of Israel were left unharmed by many of the plagues and only the Egyptians were affected. Pharaoh experienced the mighty hand of God, but his response was not one of repentance. Instead, his heart was further hardened against God. And this fits with what we see elsewhere in the Bible. When faced with God, there are some who fall on their knees and repent, asking for God's mercy. For many others, when faced with God, they become all the more aggressive towards him. This matches what we see when Jesus confronts the Pharisees. Despite everything they see, they become more hardened against him. And so in many respects, we shouldn't be surprised when we see the same today. We see the same response as the seven angels pour the seven bowls of God's wrath. We also see that the bowls contain plagues that are very similar to those experienced by Pharaoh. Not only that, but it's possible to line up roughly the trumpet plagues in the previous chapters with the plagues that come from the bowls. But what is different is while the two of the trumpets are said to affect unbelievers, here in the bowls, six of the bowls affects the unbelievers. We stated at the beginning that the church's role has been to testify to Christ. This is so that unbelievers can turn and repent. But the plagues, well, they aren't merely a warning intended to incline unbelievers towards repentance. These plagues are less about warning and more about punishment. As we see as we read through it, read through earlier, the plagues, they have a tendency to reveal hardness of heart against God. As those who experience the plagues, they don't repent but instead curse God. Furthermore, we see the bowls as condemnation because of the idolatry of the unbelievers. We see that in the first bowl. They come out in harmful, harmful and painful sores because they bear the mark of the beast and worship its image. They're committed to worshiping the beast when they should worship God. We can further add to this the declaration after the third bowl, after it's been poured out. You can see in verses 5 to 7. And I heard the angel in the charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they've shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, 
Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The reason these plagues are not warnings but punishments is because they're called judgments and they've been brought about upon those that shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. This is the answer to the prayer of the saints. God brings justice as he vindicates those who have testified to the truth. Then we come to verses 15 and 16. Some think that verses 15 and 16 are a bit of a jar and they don't fit in the context. Let's have a quick look. So verse 15, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled him at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. If we have a quick look back at 11 verse 7, chapter 11 verse 7, it says this, And when they, it's the two witnesses, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. The beast will attempt to destroy the community of believers. This will happen on the day of the Lord. So when the day of the Lord comes, the beast will destroy those that have believed. That the day of the Lord comes like a thief doesn't focus on the idea that something will be stolen, but rather the focus is on the fact that the thief comes when you least expect him. So the warning of the believer to remain awake and fully clothed, rather than going to sleep and removing your clothes, is about remaining ready for the thief to arrive. It's a picture of the believer that does not compromise, that doesn't conform to the society he lives in, so that when the Lord returns, he will have remained faithful. So to put it all together, when the Lord returns, the beast attempts to annihilate the church. And so for those in the church, the easiest option would be to conform, to be the same society. But we're encouraged not to conform, but to keep persevering, because the end is in sight. Earlier in the book of Revelation, we read of how John is told to eat a scroll. It's back at the end of chapter 10. As he eats the scroll, he describes how it's sweet in his mouth. But then as it enters his stomach, the scroll becomes bitter. And the scroll, like the trumpets and the bowls, is God's judgment against those who dwell on the earth. On the one hand, John, as representative of all believers, finds God's judgment sweet because it's the vindication of God's word. It brings glory to God. It answers the prayers of the saints. God avenges the blood of those that have been killed. But God's judgment is also bitter because it highlights the fact that God's word has been preached and there have been those that have rejected God's word. 
What is intriguing is where is the focus of this bitterness intended to be? I think quite naturally our minds may go to the sadness of the fact that there are those that are lost because they've rejected God's word. There are many that have been presented with the gospel, but instead of listening, hearing and believing, they've hardened their hearts against the gospel and missed out on salvation. But is that the reason why the scroll sits in John's stomach, filling it with bitterness? Well, alternatively, maybe this isn't what causes the bitterness in John's stomach at all. Rather, God's word has been spoken. A word that to John and all believers is life and salvation. It's the same word that brings creation into existence. The same word that sustains our life and everything, every part of creation. So the bitterness that John feels is found in the fact that people harden their hearts to God's word. The bitterness is found in the fact that God's word could be so despised that the salvation that's offered through it is not embraced but shown contempt for. It's a desire that's completely theocentric, concerned with God's glory and how completely incomprehensible the idea that the creature could and would show disdain for the Creator's word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this brief moment that we've been able to take to reflect on the seven bowls. As we reflect on these things, might we think your thoughts after you. Help us to understand the things that you revealed to us. Help us to understand the plan that you have for creation and your people. And as we reflect on these things and see how devastating they are, we thank you that we are not yet quite there. There is still time for us to preach your gospel and for people to hear, repent and believe. But at the same time, we repeat the prayer that was made by the saints. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge the blood of those who have died from the testimony of your word. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the start and promised that there would be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of what we've been reflecting upon this morning. So any thoughts, questions or comments? Yes, Nathan. Um, so, 
martial judgments, like Hartman says. Um, but in chapter 16, you can see uh, more complete there's less discussion. I can see any describers partial and simple. And just wanted to that part of uh, a crescendo version of the yeah, very much so. Um, let me just repeat the question, more of a comment, question comment on for the recording, and so everyone else can hear as well. So yeah, what we found as we've gone through the book of Revelation, we've seen there's the seven seals, then there's the seven trumpets. Interestingly, there's also seven thunders, but they're not written about. That's kept quiet about. So you've got seven seals, seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls. Particularly in the seven trumpets, there are partial judgments where there's a third, I think the verse three trumpets, there's a third of this and a third of that destroyed. So for example, chapter eight, verse nine, a third of living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. And then back, and then nine, verse 11, the name of the star is Wormwood, a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So it seems that these are partial judgments and not complete. Whereas when we get to the bowls, they seem a lot more complete in their nature. And what we've been thinking about as we've gone through Revelation is that these aren't sequential. So it's not, first thing happens is the, um, the seals, then the next thing happens is the trumpets and then the next thing happens is the bowls but rather we're seeing the same thing three times and we're seeing it from slightly different perspectives and it's therefore filling in the details as we go through first second third time so in one respect the first one the um, seven seals focuses on more the believers and how the believers will be avenged and then the second two more focus on the unbelievers and how they'll be punished and now to return to Nathan's question or comment um, why then do we get to the trumpets and it's less partial uh, compared to the sorry the trumpets are partial but the bowls are not and I think Nathan's right we're just now getting closer to that final read through as it were and so therefore the seriousness is ramping up time for another question yes Okay, just to repeat the question for the recording. So, what have been my reflections upon this as I've been thinking about it? How are we going to apply this? I think one of the, I think there's a, a number of things. So, I think one of the biggest things is it helps shape us perspective. I think that's the, the most important thing. And that's about helping us to understand what's happening. 
So if we think about, say, the society's version of what's happening, well, uh, we're living in a world where um, we should embrace and enjoy what's happening, but we also have a responsibility to get things right. We've made a mess of um, the environment, and we need to take seriously what we should be doing with regards to eating animals or not eating animals and driving our cars or not driving our cars and those sorts of things. And, I mean, that's fairly crude, but that's kind of where society is focusing on at the minute. And so I think we can get caught up in all that. And now that's not to say that those things aren't worth our time, but it does make us think actually something more important going on here that we end, we're in, in danger of missing if we do get caught up in that. Now, I guess the other thing to add to this is this all seems very extreme. This doesn't describe the friends I have who are unbelievers. This seems harsh and brutal. And But then again, I think that helps us to think, is that because our perspective is slightly skewed? Do we actually need to take a step back and say, the same apathy towards God that you see in you know, our nice friends who, you know, they're lovely people, we enjoy spending time together. But if you mention God's name, if you mention Jesus, then that's when you see a different side to them. And I think that's a big reminder to us because actually that's what this is all about. And I mean, I'm not quite sure how well I did it, but the aim of the end of it was to, to sort of just help us think about who is this that people dead disdain? This is only the person who, when he speaks, the, word exi- the, the world exists. Let there be water, uh, let there be light, and there is. You know, he speaks and things come into existence. And his plan and purpose is let run. He sends his son into the world and they turn on him and they crucify the creator. And when we dare say the name Jesus, well, that's the greatest sin you could, you know, forget about global warming, forget about eating meat. How dare you mention his name? I don't want to hear his name. And I think that starts to make us think, have we forgot the seriousness of what's going on? Does this help us think that actually there will be a reckoning and that is necessary? It might seem brutal to us, but I think that's because we forgot who it is that has been offended. Who it is who sent his son to die on our behalf and who died on our behalf and whose spirit is now working within us, but is being uh, blasphemed against. And along with all that, as we reflect on that, enjoy the holiday as well. (laughs) Is that uh, okay? Is that helpful? Time for one more. It doesn't have to be. We can leave it there.
Okay, let's leave it there then. Oh, go on, Mackie. Yeah, definitely. So, Mackie's just saying we've come across Babylon again, and we're to con are we to continue thinking of that as that symbol as we've seen before? Yeah, so um, Babylon, as we saw earlier, as we've been looking at Revelation, that was the city that took the people into exile, and there was that great pressure for Daniel and his friends to conform. And when they didn't conform, they were persecuted. In God's providence, he saved them and they persevered. What we're seeing here is that Babylon's still around, not in terms of the literal city, but that um, hostility against God. It was reflected in Rome and it's reflected in our society today. And in this case, the souls who were under the altar, well, they weren't saved by God. They wait their vindication, which is what Daniel's friends said. We, we looked at last week when Maj uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were in the fire. Uh, the challenge is put to them, who will save you from my hands? And they say effectively, my God will save me or our God will save us. But if he doesn't, we will not bow down to your idol. The idea being it's not about whether God's going to save them or not. It's about who is God. And that's, again, that's the sentiment of the message this morning. And I guess this goes back to the application as well. Um, what do we do? And so much of the church have conformed to society. There's an awful lot of pressure to conform at the minute on various different subjects. And the church is conforming. But here the message that we're getting is, do not conform, because if you conform and the thief arrives, then you'll be exposed. Let's leave it there. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And in doing so, we'll continue to reflect on what we've been thinking about in a little bit more detail. But before we do, we're going to stand to sing How Deep the Father's Love for Us.